Hey, Outpost Theology listeners, this is Josh McNall, and we're back with another episode at the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. My guest today is a guy by the name of Matthew Thiessen, and he's the author of one of the best books I've read this year in biblical studies. It's called Jesus and the Forces of Death, the Gospel's Portrayal of Ritual Impurity Within First Century Judaism. Now, if you're not a pastor, if you're not a Bible scholar or a professor, I know what some of you are thinking, like, Josh, why would I want to listen to a podcast on Jewish ritual impurity? I mean, stuff like blood and, and menstruation and, and corpses and, and leprosy. That sounds kind of gross and kind of weird. But I promise you, Matthew Thiessen is going to connect those things to some stories in the Gospels that maybe you've read for years but never fully understood. So I'm really excited to bring him to you. As always, this episode is sponsored by Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And as always, if you could go to wherever you download your podcasts and just leave us a nice, honest review, it really helps us to get the episode out there. And now, Matthew Thiessen on Jesus and the Forces of Death. Matt, welcome to Outpost Theology. Thanks for having me on, Josh. I, uh, I often Google the guests when I, uh, when I do these podcasts, you know, to find a little bit more about them. And uh, usually it comes back the kind of thing that you would expect. But when I, I Googled Matthew Thiessen, uh, the first thing to come up was that you're the former lead singer of Reliant K. Uh, <laughs> and you uh, apparently dated Katy Perry. Is that true at one point? If it helps sell books, sure. But no, uh, no, I'm not. But I'm often confused, unfortunately, with uh, the pop punk singer, Matthew okay. Thiessen. We're, and we're both from Canada, actually. Well, a lot uh, of my a... questions are going to make a lot less sense Okay, now. shoot. <laughs> well, I will say this, that um, I, I wouldn't have been thrown off, but I did see another interview with you. And you're, you know, you're, a, you're a handsome guy. You do kind of have rock star hair. And uh, so for a moment, I, I thought maybe I had a a very different kind of interview. Yeah, guess, no, this but... is pandemic hair. <laughs> I wish I had that, but I'm just, yeah. I've been just going bald during the pandemic. So, well, all right, enough silliness. You are Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster University, a PhD from Duke, a Master's from Oxford in, in Jewish Studies. And I've told you already, I think via email, but uh, Jesus and the Forces of Death, uh, one of my favorite books I've read this year for sure, in the area of biblical studies. And uh, so thanks for that. And I've heard I've heard several other people say the same uh, about it. It's just a, it's a fantastic book. And uh, so I hope people have a chance to, to pick it up. But before we, before we jump to Jesus, I want to start with that quote that I read at the, at the onset uh, about ritual impurity. And because um, when I posted about your book on social media, just how excellent it was, I got a lot of scholar friends chiming in saying, yes, it's fantastic. One of the best books I've read. And then some of my just sort of non-scholar friends were like, why would you ever read a book about <laughs> ritual impurity? What in the world? Um, so can can you talk a little bit about what ritual impurity was in, yeah. uh, in ancient Judaism and uh, maybe just kind of give a little bit of an introduction to it? Yep, sure. Uh, yeah, that uh, <laughs> that reaction is is uh, unfortunately not uncommon. Um, but I really wrote this book, you know, both for scholars and for non-scholars to try to help people get a better sense of uh, what ritual impurity was and why it might matter. Um, in Judaism, there are three sort of categories, three sources for ritual impurity. Uh, 
first is um, a corpse. Numbers 19 talks about corpses emit ritual impurity. Mm -hmm. The second is a thing that's often translated as leprosy. This is an incorrect translation. Mm -hmm. uh, the Greek word behind that is lepra, and it really just refers to uh, well, a variety, I think, of minor skin, relatively minor skin conditions, more like eczema than leprosy. Mm -hmm. And then the third category, sort of a, a catch-all category for any uh, genital discharge of blood or semen. So sex, childbirth, nocturnal emissions, menstruation, and a variety of other um, conditions that lead to genital discharges. Yeah. Yeah. So those three main categories. And can you talk about why those impurities are associated in um, the Jewish tradition with the forces of death? Yeah. So uh, I make that claim based in, in uh, many ways on the work of Jacob Milgram, who's a Jewish scholar who's written a ton on, on Leviticus and Numbers. Um, Milgram and others have tried to sort out why why these three sources and not other sources uh, for ritual impurity. What do they share in common? And what uh, he has argued is, well, uh, death is the common sort of underlying connection. Corpses, obviously, dead bodies. Um, lepra, uh, what gets translated as leprosy wrongly, uh, He's noted there are ancient texts from uh, Numbers and Job and then other Jewish literature that associate this skin condition, this white flaky skin condition with the appearance of death. Uh, it's sort of like the walking dead. Mm -hmm. And then discharges of blood or semen is the discharge of, of life force from a body. And so it's sort of associated with death. Others have argued it has to do more with mortality and that, that may be right, but um, mortality, of course, uh, includes death. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we had that passage in Leviticus that talks about the life of the creature being in the blood. And so to right. sort of, to bleed out, would you say that's, a, you know, a reason why blood, the, the f external flow of blood is associated with that? Yeah. But, but again, it's only genital discharges. Yeah. It's not just, not just if you cut yourself and are bleeding, right. you're not ritually impure. So th this is where some people say, well, death is, it's a bit tricky because it's not just uh, blood, but particular forms of blood. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, casual readers of the Bible, or maybe even maybe some not so casual readers of the Bible too, might wrongly assume that to be ritually impure was sinful. Um, when there's a difference, as you mo point out, between ritual and, and moral impurity. So why is it important not to kind of mix those two categories? And can you give an example of how a ritual impurity can become a moral impurity if it's not dealt with properly? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is very common. Lay people, pastors, even professors of New Testament or the Hebrew Bible will do this. And um, partly it's because Leviticus uses the same Hebrew word for ritual impurity and for moral impurity. So these categories of ritual and moral, these are modern categories scholars have tried to help understand uh, this term. If we think ritual is uh, ritual impurity is equivalent to moral impurity, then I think we get a, a caricature of both uh, Israelite religion and, and ancient Judaism, which then helps us or, or encourages us to just dismiss the whole ritual impurity system altogether as as irrelevant or nonsensical. Um, you know, if if we think well, Jews thought sex was morally wrong, uh, or childbirth was morally wrong then it's easy to sort of caricature Judaism as this, you know, silly system. 
Mm-hmm. So to keep these things distinct, ritual has impurity has nothing in in the first instance to do with moral impurity or sin. It can become that if you take your ritual impurity, if you are ritually impure and you enter into, for instance, sacred space or eat uh, sacred food, mm-hmm. then you've moved from ritual impurity, which comes from a natural source, to an action where you have willfully chosen to eat or enter into sacred space where you're not supposed to with this ritual impurity. And then it becomes also a moral issue. Yeah. So you've taken this this ritual impurity that's not sinful per se, and you've brought the impurity into sacred space um, and, and thereby created a kind of moral um, problem, right? Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We have like, you have several helpful charts in the book that I think were, for me, were really helpful to kind of understand some of these distinctions. And you talk about how ritual impurity is unavoidable in certain instances. It's from a natural substance. It's communicable. It's bathed away. Um, It's not an abomination. It's not sinful. And then on the other side, you talk about how moral impurity is avoidable. It's from an action. It's non-communicable. And it requires atonement or punishment. Uh, just there are several charts like that that I found just really helpful for me as a because I'm a systematic theologian, and it's it's not that I don't read the Bible, sure. but I I really depend on uh, specialists like yourself and the biblical studies to kind of help me uh, along the way. But probably the main thing I wanted to ask you about was on this this question of implicit essentialism Hmm. or essentialism. And I know that'll maybe require a little bit of definition, but one of the things you seem to be saying is that there's kind of an implicit essentialism at work in the scriptures when it comes to ritual impurity. And in other words, that there's this assumption that ritual impurities have an ontological reality so that corpses, and you can correct me if I'm misunderstanding, lepra and genital discharges emit a real substance or real power into the world. Um, So maybe to start with, for listeners, can you contrast that essentialist approach to what you uh, call a nominalist reading of ritual impurity? Yeah. Uh, so here, in a lot of ways, I'm dependent upon the the work of Christine Hayes uh, and others who have talked about sort of legal discourses, legal theory, and applied it to to ancient texts. Um, maybe maybe the best way to talk about this in terms of like a nominalist approach is to think about something like international boundaries. Mm-hmm. I'm in Canada, you're in the states. There is a boundary. Uh, the 49th parallel, and then it goes down uh, around the Great Lakes, but there's a boundary between our two nations. That's actually just a legal fiction. It's entirely made up. Mm-hmm. If you go to the 49th parallel, you can just walk right across the border. You're going to get in trouble, mm-hmm. but there's nothing in nature that has separated Canada from the States. Right. Um, that's a nominalist approach, something that's set up, but it's not rooted in the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, an essentialist approach, this isn't to do with a, a boundary per se, but like the, the continental divide where uh, water on one side of the divide runs to the West Coast and the Pacific Ocean, or on the other side runs to the East Coast and into the Atlantic. That is something that's naturally existent. It has an ontological reality. Uh, no law made it happen. It just is in the natural world. So this is what I'm talking about with essentialism and nominalism. Uh, 
when it comes to things like impurity, ritual impurity, it's quite clear that the priestly writers of Leviticus and other texts, and I think you see this actually coming through in the Gospels, there is this belief that there is something naturally existent in the world that is emitting, like a force, a force of nature is emitting a substance or a power that actually causes people to become impure if they come into contact with this ritual impurity. Yeah. And I think, you know, if we move from biblical studies to theology, I've always assumed, I suppose, what you would call more of a nominalist um, reading, or maybe I would call it kind of a pedagogical purpose behind the ritual impurity um, laws. And so I wanted to ask, like, you know, if if I've been understanding that wrongly, perhaps, but in other words, I think my assumption is that it's not that certain bodily fluids are actually like noxious to God when it comes to sacred space. Rather, I, my assumption has been that the concept of impurity serves as a kind of like teachable moment or a, a pedagogical purpose to to teach humans about the need for reverence for God or to reverence the holy. And so would you say that that assumption is kind of misguided, that sort of pedagogical reading of the impurities? Yeah, I think it. I think it misses um, the sort of dynamics that uh, ancient Israelites, ancient Jews had in mind when they were thinking about these systems. Uh, so the issue is, and this is sort of drawing again on on Jacob Milgram's work, uh, that God, as utterly holy, mm-hmm. um, can't safely coexist in the presence of mortality or death. Something's going to happen. Why? Because God also is, uh, when holiness is also a force. Hmm. Again, an ontological reality and a force. Hmm. So when these things collide, there something's going to actually happen. Hmm. So for instance, the Ark of the Covenant, as it's going down the road and being moved and it slips and someone touches it, it's, uh, a natural sort of um, organic reaction that the man actually dies. Uh, So there may be a pedagogical, you know, reading to that text, but it, it's based on this idea that to come into God's presence Mm -hmm. is a potentially very dangerous thing. Yeah. Uh, Electricity is wonderful, but if you approach it the wrong way, you're going to regret it. And that's sort of, I think this dynamic view of God in God's presence in the world is it's dangerous. And so there have to be the right sort of safety, uh, safety guidelines put in place to ensure humans can coexist. Mortals can coexist with uh, the immortal God. And what you, so what you seem to be saying is that, yeah, there's a pedagogical, there's like a lesson to be learned here about holiness and the need to reverence sacred space, but that's built upon a sort of, essentialist or actual yeah. um, claim about rituals and purities as real forces or real powers. Is that right? Yeah. You need to reverence God because uh, God is a bit of a frightful, f- fearful thing if approached wrongly. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So this is a question from systematic theology. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Um, and I realized that even to ask this question is to sort of maybe make a false um, conflation that we've already talked about between impurity and evil, right? So, um, so one of the claims within systematic theology, at least in certain parts of the tradition, is that 
uh, I think the Latin is malum est privatio bonum. The evil is a merely a privation of the good, right? That it doesn't have an ontological substance, right? No. And I know we're not talking about evil because we're talking about impurity, right? Yeah. But how does the Jewish uh, mindset on pure on impurity as an actual ontological substance maybe dovetail or contradict or rub up against some of those theological assumptions about yeah. evil as merely a privation of the good or as not having sort of an ontological subs, uh, substance. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> That's a hard question. <laughs> uh, so I would, I would stress, so there are nominalist readings of impurity, that uh -huh. it's not something in nature, which uh -huh. might coincide better with sort of this idea that uh, evil is just a privation. It's, it's an absence of, of good. Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't have its own ontological status. So that's, that's possible, I think, within certain Jewish traditions. Um, the ones I'm thinking of, though, it seems very much like there is this idea that, that there is something malevolent out there that at least uh, in, well, in, in the priestly creation narrative of Genesis 1 with darkness and the waters that seem to be there as God begins to create, which is a, which is a process of ordering these things are contained and controlled and separated, distinguished, uh, but they're real mm. and they're there mm -hmm. and they haven't been destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what you get in Leviticus. These things are there and they're contained. Mm -hmm. Presumably the holy God, who's all powerful and priestly thought could say, I'm getting rid of all these sources of impurity, corpses and lepra and general discharges, mm -hmm. and moral impurity for that matter. That's mm -hmm. not how Leviticus works. It deals with the realities, the sort of consequences of these things out in the world. But there's always this hope that, um, well, not always, but there are places where you see this hope of this is not going to be the final sort of mm -hmm say in how this works. Ezekiel has this idea of, you know, bones coming, bones and coming back to yeah. life, yeah. Uh, moral impurity or sorry, yeah, removed and a new sort of nature implanted within humanity to make them what, what again, what Christine Hayes will talk about is robo-righteousness, automatically doing what God wants. Yeah. So I think there's this idea that this stuff exists ontologically for now. Mm -hmm. It's God's given ways to contain it, but God's going to ultimately rooted out. Hey, Outpost Theology listeners. One of the new things on campus here at Oklahoma Wesleyan that we are most excited about is our new honors curriculum. Our honors program is for students who want to get more out of their college experience. And so in the same four-year period, for the same amount of money, you can get a double major in the major of your choice and a second major in letters. Our honor students meet together with professors from different disciplines to approach subjects in an integrated manner that dives deep and connects what we're learning to the Christian life today. So if you or someone you know is interested in getting more out of your college education, just go to www.okwu.edu to find out more. Well, I'm sorry for throwing kind of like a off the cuff question in there, but one of the reasons I like the book so much is, especially as a theologian, to be called continually back to the text itself mm -hmm. and to allow the text to sort of question some of my assumptions is, is really helpful for me. I suppose you could even say that 
if there is coming a day perhaps when this current state of impurity, you know, does not exist in the same way, like you mentioned the Ezekiel passage, that that uh, perhaps um, opens up the possibility that there was once um, a once or a time when they didn't exist in the same way, uh, which would then open up the possibility for the current state of affairs to be a kind of corruption or... Yep. Um, I'm just sort of thinking on the fly, but it doesn't sort of preclude that notion, it wouldn't seem. No, I, I agree. I, you know, Genesis 1's, uh, in, in the sort of opening of Genesis 1, is highly debated, um, well, like most biblical texts. But, uh, you know, I don't think when the priestly writer or editor was, was forming Genesis 1 that they were thinking, well, there's darkness and there's waters and there's evil and they've mm-hmm. preexisted and they're right. just as powerful as, as our God. Right. Um, clearly not. Right. Uh, there's no God comparable to, you know, God in Israelite thinking. There, there may be lesser deities, but they are they are subservient ultimately right. um, to God. So this, you know, there may be a dualism of sorts, but the, there's such an imbalance of power. We probably need to be careful how we talk about it as a dualism right. or, or what kind of ontological status these things have yeah. ultimately. That there's one being worthy of worship and honor and who is sovereign. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I want to turn to Jesus. And one of your key points is that Jesus takes very seriously the ritual impurity system in the Jewish scriptures, that he never downplays its importance. And he moves rather to remove the source of impurity by embodying what you call, quote, a contagious power of holiness. And so... Has this point been missed by many Bible scholars and theologians? And so I want to ask kind of how has Jesus been depicted wrongly yeah. as opposing the Jewish purity laws? Can you can you give some examples of that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's not universal anymore. I think maybe at one time it was, but it's it's becoming less uh less common now that that scholars have looked at texts like Jesus dealing with people who have lepra. Um, what translations say is leprosy, or the woman with the genital uh, hemorrhage, or a corpse, and say, oh, he touches them. Look, he doesn't care about ritual impurity. He's touching them. Well, first of all, to touch someone who's ritually impure is not a sin. Again, it's not moral impurity. Uh, it would be if this was going into the temple precincts or something, then then we have a problem. But contact alone isn't, isn't showing disregard or disdain. Um, the fact that Jesus heals them for some reason has been taken repeatedly as a sign that Jesus is now abandoning, rejecting the ritual impurity system, which is sort of an odd thing. Um, I'm trying to think of a a great analogy. I've yet to sort of land on one, but I'm thinking about something like planes, airplanes, people who work on uh, building airplanes and designing airplanes don't reject the idea of gravity. They believe it exists and believe it's a problem that needs to be overcome. So they work on things like aerodynamics and other aspects of science and physics that I just don't know. Uh, because they think we can come up, we could, there are other laws out there that we can access that, to overcome gravity. And this is how the Gospels, or, well, the Synoptic Gospels especially, depict Jesus. Yeah. There is some force, there's some law that can help people overcome ritual impurity itself. Not the system, but the existence of ritual impurity. 
Yeah. So maybe to kind of continue that aer- aeronautical analogy, it's it's not that the person who's designing the airplane says that gravity is irrelevant or non-existent. They actually have to have a deeper understanding of gravity or physics yeah. than say a person who doesn't, you know, isn't capable of producing flight or something like that. Does that right. does that sort of follow? Yeah. If you don't believe in gravity, you jump off a tall building. If you do believe in gravity, you study it, you study the science, and you try to overcome it by, you know, designing wings and strong enough engines. So that's what Jesus is depicted as. He's this airplane. (laughs) That's an awful analogy. Uh, (laughs) He's this force that is more powerful than these sources of ritual impurity. Yeah. Well, it produces, I think, a a reading of the scriptures that that is... to use another kind of theological description, sort of an anti-Marcionite reading that sort of just dismisses the Old Testament law or the, uh, and, and resituates Jesus more fully into his Jewish context, which I found, um, I found really, really helpful. But um, maybe my favorite passage or my favorite um, part of the book was your treatment of Jesus and the, the bleeding woman. And so one of the most vivid examples of his confrontation with these forces of uh, ritual impurity is that story. And you talk about the the term in Hebrew is the Zavah, Leviticus 15. Am I, am I saying that right as a That's non? Right. Uh, yep. Okay. Uh, so the story is, is referenced in, in different ways in the synoptics, but um, Mark is the one that I've sort of got pulled up in front of me. And in Mark 5, starting in verse 24, it says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And I won't read the full passage. Most listeners probably are very familiar with it or they can look it up um, on their own, but Maybe one of my favorite lines, and the book is really just well-written, uh, and so I wanted to compliment you on that, but one of my favorite Thanks. lines from the book is you say, Jesus's body cannot help but emit a power that destroys her impurity. The story implies that Jesus's body can function like an unthinking force of contagion that inevitably destroys impurity. I love that because he doesn't even know like who's, who's touched him, right? That, yeah. That's, um, it's almost, you know, we're in this period of pandemic, you know, where we're all thinking about contagiousness and, uh, you know, viral particles and stuff. But yeah. I've got a lot of questions about this text, but maybe to start, why does this woman think that touching Jesus's clothes or, or the fringe um, of his garment will bring healing? <laughs> That's a super good question, because uh, it hasn't happened yet in Mark's gospel. It happens just after this that we then Mark sort of gives a summary of all these great deeds Jesus is doing, and one of them is even people who touch his clothing um, are healed. Mm-hmm. So she seems to come to this conclusion on her own, this idea on her own, and it, it's got to be, I think, uh, based on this belief that, well, it, it could be two things. One, it could be knowing how ritual impurity works, I touch him, he becomes ritually impure. Uh, maybe it's sort of a hesitance about touching him directly. 
but mm. touching his clothing is sort of a little bit of circumspection, perhaps. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure. Yeah. But I think there's also this sense of if she's got this idea that somehow Jesus is this holy force, so holy, in fact, that even what he's wearing has uh, become holy mm-hmm. and has um, sort of captured his power so that even accessing just this fringe, this garment can perhaps shoot out this power. It can give grant her access to this power and without Jesus's permission, right? Jesus doesn't say, yes, you are, you are healed. I heal you. Um, mm-hmm. It just happens. Uh, so this, this could be based on ideas of the, we get this in uh, priestly texts, this idea that the priest's garments uh, actually are holy and have to be removed before they leave sacred mm-hmm. space. Because if this holy garment comes into contact with other things, those things then become holy, mm-hmm. which the more things that are holy and set apart, the more complicated life gets and the more trouble you're bound to get into. So the whole point is you got to be careful about what becomes holy. And so maybe this idea that even priestly garments become holy and are contagious is, is somehow in the background there, but Mark never, never uh, unfolds this for, for his readers. Yeah, why she why she thinks that. Yeah. One of the questions I had about this passage is if if Jesus embodies the divine presence and the divine holiness on earth with his body acting kind of like a movable temple. You know, we have passages where Jesus says, you know, tear this temple down and in, in three days I'll build it again. Um other passages that sort of speak of him symbolically in ways that echo the temple or the tabernacle or why doesn't the woman bear guilt for knowingly touching the Holy one of God? And isn't, isn't that bringing her impurity into sacred space or in contact with sacred space? If Jesus is kind of like the, the sort of the the dwelling place of God on earth and why isn't Jesus then contaminated like the temple or the tabernacle would be, if he's like this, this divine, holy dwelling. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Boy, do I wish Mark or Matthew or Luke would really have said what's going on there. Yeah. I don't know um, for certain. My hunch is that uh, it's helpful to think of these things for whatever reason. I think this is how, how uh, the gospel writers think God has set up the game. The priestly writings view the temple and tabernacle uh, as really a defensive system. It does not get rid of sources of ritual impurity. It's incapable of doing that. Priests can't do it. Priests cannot make lepra go away. They don't raise corpses from the dead. They don't stop genital discharges. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen. What they do is they deal with the consequences. They're playing defense and containing. Mm -hmm. For some reason, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke think. Israel's God has added a new force, an offensive force into this world of impurity. Mm -hmm. So we're no longer just containing, we're now destroying Mm -hmm. these sources of impurity, not just containing the consequences of it. You do see that a little bit in some really odd stories about Elijah and Elisha, um, where they're able, they, they, well, Elisha tells Naaman to go bathe in the Jordan. Mm-hmm. And he comes out and he's cleansed, which, uh, you know, this isn't a, a priestly purification, right? It's a, a one-off. Uh, they raise the dead. Mm-hmm. And um, 
there's this you know really fascinating story of Elisha's bones, which ought to be ritually impure, somehow giving life to a corpse. And how does that even happen? The text doesn't tell us, but the assumption has to be there's some sort of holy force lurking, even amongst ritually impure bones, to the point that these ritually impure bones no longer exert their force of impurifying or um, polluting, but that whatever the holiness is there, it's actually cleansing the impurity of another corpse that yeah. happens to bump into it. So this is something that's going on with Jesus. These This body is the Holy One it, of God. It, it has the Holy Spirit. It is just imbued with holiness mm-hmm. in a way that is um, almost entirely unique mm-hmm. in Jewish thinking and exudes a s- offensive force of just crushing death. Yeah. And I suppose it could be a way of saying that, you know, one greater than the temple is here. That, yeah. that this is not just a different kind of temple or tablet, but it is a, Jesus is is unique and preeminent and superior to kind of our prior conceptions. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think this is, you see this in, in um, well, debates about the Sabbath uh, and how Jesus and his disciples are keeping it, where Jesus says, especially it's very clear in, in Matthew's gospel in particular, that temple service trumps Sabbath observance. Priests work on the Sabbath. It's not a breaking of the law in any real sense. And then Jesus's claim is that what he's up to, what his mission is up to is even greater than the temple. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, I think you can view that in a couple of ways. And one that Christians have predominantly viewed that is, is competition and rejection of the temple system. I don't think it has to be that. I think it can be very much a sort of a two-pronged, two-tiered approach. Um, I like football a lot. You can't just have offense and you can't just have defense. You have to have both. Mm. Uh, But at the end of the day, you have to put up more points. Uh, And so I think you can view the gospel writers talking about the temple Mm -hmm. and still viewing it as not insignificant, not unimportant, but that Jesus is this new force of Israel's God now in the world doing new things mm-hmm. and and where the temple contained Jesus is breaking out into the world and and destroying the root causes that make the temple necessary mm-hmm. yeah what well, seems and again there's a sort of there's different movements in theology and biblical studies and in one of the kind of big ones right now is the apocalyptic school of theology, right? Which is stressing the utter newness and the inbreaking of this totally new reality in the Christ event, you know? Um, And then that clashes with much more sort of continuationist readings where Jesus comes in as, you know, uh, sort of like the culmination of this Jewish story, but very much a part of it, you know, and it seems to me that there's both, there's both going on. You know, you, yeah. we have an utterly Jewish Jesus who is not discounting the importance of the ritual impurity system. And yet at the same time, there is something new and different and without precedent in his, um, in his being and in his actions. Would you, would you say that's fair to, to say? Yeah, very much. The gospels view, uh, I mean, they view the kingdom of God coming in Jesus and where I think before what you have is this outpost of God's kingdom in the temple and maybe radiating radiating it a little bit. uh, 
but still you have all these parameters to guard from these forces of impurity and forces of death that surround the temple precincts. Now you have this breakout where the kingdom of God is advancing into the kingdom of death, the kingdom of Satan and the impure spirits and is taking back Mm -hmm. uh, death. Hey, Outpost Theology listeners, Oklahoma Wesleyan University has some big new scholarship opportunities. So if you or anyone you know is interested in getting a high-quality Christian liberal arts education at our Bartlesville, Oklahoma campus, listen up. If you are a Wesleyan ministers or missionary dependent, that means the child of a full-time Wesleyan minister or missionary, we have a 75% off of tuition scholarship. Now, I don't know what you're thinking. If you are a pastor's kid or a missionary kid, but your parent's not a Wesleyan pastor, we have a scholarship for you as well. It's a 50% off of tuition for a non-Wesleyan minister or missionary dependent. Now, for each of these new scholarships, special rules and conditions, of course, apply. So if you want to find out more, just go to www.okwu.edu to find out more. I want to shift a little bit from ritual impurity to atonement. And um, my last book was on atonement doctrine. And so I'm particularly interested in that topic and how it might relate to yours. And you seem to almost tease a little bit of a connection at the very end of your introduction on page eight. And you say, this particular understanding of Jesus's destruction of the sources of ritual impurity helps connect Jesus's mission to his death and resurrection. Jesus's skirmishes with these various ritual impurities, all forces of death, as I shall argue, foreshadow his crucifixion in which death takes over Jesus's body. At the very point where death seems to have overwhelmed Jesus, Israel's God raises him from the dead, setting him eternally triumphant over even death itself. And and so I, Again, this is maybe a little bit unfair because it's not technically the topic of your of your book, but are there some connections that you see between Jesus as this holy contagion and the way we understand his saving and atoning work on the cross or elsewhere? Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to say here, and I didn't say it in my book for a lot of different reasons. One, the gospel writers generally don't reflect at great length on what's happening in Jesus's death. Mm. Uh, you get some, some comments. Um, so I'm not saying there's nothing, but there's not a ton. Mm-hmm. It's not like Paul and it's not like, for instance, Hebrews, which talks about this at length. And that's just a great place to think, connect with what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. You do get, uh, on the other hand, the really fascinating story in Matthew's gospel, which I talk about a bit in my, my chapter on corpse impurity. At the very moment when Jesus dies, when his body becomes a corpse and should therefore be ritually impure and therefore shooting out ritual impurity everywhere, something very odd happens in Matthew. (laughs) Jesus dies and all of a sudden a bunch of saints, holy ones who have previously died and are in tombs come to life. Mm. So Matthew, I think, is trying to clearly state that there is something oddly life-giving, much like Elisha's bones, mm-hmm. uh, even in death, uh, life 
is there. There is this power that is now unleashed uh, beyond Jesus's immediate body out into Jerusalem, where these are actually outside of Jerusalem, where these saints are in the tombs who come back to life. So, uh, you know, this idea that ultimately Jesus's death isn't the final word, it's actually life. Israel's God raises Jesus from the dead uh, and life triumphs and death is destroyed. This is all really part of this larger picture of, of the gospel stories. That's not just a bunch of random stories about Jesus, but it's really all just a preface to him dying and being raised. And that's where the work really happens. The work's been happening all along. Jesus has been destroying the forces of death all the way through mm -hmm. the gospels. And it's sort of initial skirmishes with little forces of death ultimately until the final force death itself takes Jesus's body and is ultimately destroyed. So atonement has to do with, uh, well, two things, moral impurity, sin, but also with what's connected to ritual impurity, mortality. Yeah. And Jesus's death is focused on these sort of two prongs of impurity, uh, moral and mortality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, that story of Matthew is just, I've written about it previously just because it's so weird. It's so bizarre, you know, but one of the, one of the things I think that maybe you could say that we miss as modern Western people who are kind of radical individualists in many ways is this sort of connection between different persons when it comes to uh, the power of life and death. And even, even touch perhaps illustrates that in the, you know, that some, there's somehow this, this ability for others to participate in the life of, you know, other people. And that, uh, that that's maybe a topic for another day, but I, I found the, the possible connections fascinating between this conversation on ritual impurity and, and atonement. So, um, uh, the last, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is the early on in the book, as I was, you know, sort of reading along, I kept having this question and the question was, what about that passage in the gospels where Jesus declares or seemingly declares all foods clean? And thankfully you didn't leave me hanging. You, uh, you do address that in the appendix. And, uh, so I was, I appreciated that. So maybe to, to kind of, since that's sort of how you conclude the book in the appendix, how does Jesus' statement there connect to your prior work on ritual impurity? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did not want to deal, well, I wasn't going to deal with this passage for one reason. It doesn't have to do with um, ritual impurity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not moral impurity. It's not ritual impurity. Uh, Impure foods have to do with with animals mm -hmm. who aren't ritually impure, and well, moral impurity doesn't apply to them. So it's a, it's a different category. There are a few different categories of impurity happening, and so I really wanted to focus on ritual impurity and not focus on this. But I thought people, Josh, you're one of them, are going to say, "Well, what about this text?" And so I thought I really do have to handle it. But I didn't want to. It didn't really fit as a chapter, so I just threw it in this appendix. Uh, a, Mark 7, 19, uh, Jesus declares all foods clean. The word of declare isn't there. It's, and it's not Jesus declaring all things. It's thus purifying all, all foods is the Greek. Uh, the whole issue focuses not on ritual impurity per se, and actually not on uh, kosher food, 
it is based on the Pharisees' concern that uh, if you eat with unwashed hands, you're ultimately going to transmit any impurity you might have into your body. This is a really unique and uh, in, in, uh, relatively, well, in terms of Jesus' day, a relatively modern development in legal thinking. And it's the Pharisees and the Pharisees alone who hold to this idea. And even later, rabbinic literature says this is a Pharisaic innovation. This isn't a biblical thing. We've come up with this uh, because we think maybe this is, you know, we're, we think this is right, but we, it's not there in the Bible. Uh, Jesus says that very clearly. I don't, don't obey the commandments of men over the commandments of God. This isn't biblical, in other words. Uh, your concern about ingesting food that you've accidentally transmitted impurity to is not a concern you ought to have. Um, and so his argument, and this is something that a number of scholars like Gerhard Furstenberg and one of my former students, John Van Maren, have argued. The argument is really the concern about it. It's a legal argument about how does impurity work? Mm. And Jesus's argument is, look, impurity doesn't go into the body. You don't need to worry about impurity going in. Impurity starts in and goes out. And he points to moral impurity as it comes from the heart and leaves the body. Uh, and ritual impurity works the same way. Corpse impurity shoots out impurity. Um, so you don't have to worry about interior, putting something ritually impure in you and then inside being ritually impure. Yeah. That's sort of the concern. I should say, and I get, this is, I guess, you know, maybe controversial. Matthew deletes Mark 7, 19 when he's rewriting and, and adding to Mark. And he makes it like crystal clear. This is nothing about Jesus abandoning kosher food laws, which, you know, would be a little bit hypocritical after Jesus has just com condemned the Pharisees for abandoning the commandments of God for Jesus to then say, well, I'm going to go abandon the commandments of God now. So I think that text has been unfortunately read wrong for, for, well, almost 2000 years. Yeah. Kind of bringing in a different discussion into this, this prior one. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really appreciate you, Matt, just taking time to talk with us. Are there projects that you're working on now? I think you might be on research leave, um, which in the middle of a pandemic, I don't know how, how that's been for you, but are yeah. there things you're working on future projects that are on the horizon? I'm uh, <laughs> yeah. Pandemic has changed things. Um, I haven't been as productive as I've wanted to be, uh, but but it's been fruitful in other ways. But I'm I'm uh, right now trying to write a sort of popular level book on the Apostle Paul, sort of taking some of the work I've done on Paul in a previous book, Paul and the Gentile Problem, and making it a little more accessible uh, to a wider audience to, to sort of um, maybe try to get this this reading of Paul within Judaism out to a, a broader readership. Yeah, that's exciting. Well, we'll look for that and. Once again, everybody, uh, the book is Jesus and the Forces of Death, the Gospel's Portrayal of Ritual Impurity Within First Century Judaism. And so if you're a, if you're a reader of uh, biblical studies, uh, even theology, this was, again, one of the, the best books I've read this year in that, in that category. So Matthew Thiessen, thanks for joining us on Outpost Theology. Thanks, Josh.